Welcome friends far and wide with Felix from Sydney and Devon from Los Angeles side by side. We'll discuss solutions, scenarios and insights and share knowledge that will take us to new heights. From research reports to social buzz, we'll cover it all without any fuss. And don't forget the job market update. Stephanie's overview will be first rate. We'll talk about mental health and sales enablement and Fastco's five minute mentorship will be a great segment. Book reviews, articles, and more. It's a packed session, that's for sure. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. We'll share knowledge that will make you glow. Felix and Devin are here to lead the way, so let's get started without delay. Devin, how are you today? Felix, I am amazing, and I want everything in my life to be articulated as a poem. Yeah, yeah. How much more magical would everything be? But again, I'm thrilled to be here. We have so much incredible content to cover today. So ChatGPT makes it possible. I obviously <laughs> didn't sit down for hours and contemplate that poem. But yeah, ChatGPT seems to be everybody's dirty little secrets right now to awesome content. And by the way, ChatGPT4 has launched today, which is supposed oh. to use 50 times more data points to inform responses than the previous versions. So we're moving fast on the AI front, to say the least. Incredible. Anybody who hasn't jumped on that bandwagon yet, make sure to get involved. But I have to ask you, Devin, are you still able to pay your mortgage? Or has Silicon Valley Bank closed your account? And do those people owe you money? What a wild ride. Like, I have never been so consumed with everything that was happening so quickly. Thankfully, I'm okay. My friends are okay. But... I can't even keep up with what's going on. And it was absolutely shocking <laughs> and possibly all caused by a couple of crazy tweets. But I'm just saying, I don't know, just putting it out there. Yeah, yeah, it's still unfolding. We're still unpacking it, but definitely interesting to watch. So let's kick things off with some insights. And we didn't have a whole lot of podcast episodes, but I recently launched a format, it's called a deep dive. And it's essentially a solo episode where we dive deep into certain topic areas. A lot of it's informed by some of the content that Mike Kunkel and myself have put out as part of our Building Blocks Close-Up newsletter. So this is just another format to make this content more accessible to people. And one of the episodes, or the very first episode, I should say, that we launched that followed this format was about scenario-based solution selling. And I just quickly wanted to talk about that one. And one of the quotes that we have used there was from a CSO Insight self-performance optimization study. And what those guys in that study have said was, while product training will always be needed, level four or the best performing companies realize that prospects typically conduct significant online research before meeting with a salesperson. And as a result, are no longer reliant on the salesperson for information. So the primary focus of these companies' training initiatives is on improving the selling skills of their salespeople so that they can have meaningful business dialogues with prospects, right? So the gist of this study here and this quote here is that it is no longer enough for salespeople to just be walking and talking brochures, so to speak, that they can just recite product information. And what we talk about in this episode was basically that there's essentially typically three different maturity levels when it comes to scenario-based solution selling. So the, the lowest maturity level is just salespeople reciting product features and just bombarding prospects with those features without any consideration on what the prospect's needs are. The second tier is essentially trying to map features towards challenges that the customer encounters. And then the third tier, the most mature tier, which is what we recommend everybody should be aiming for, is the scenario-based solution selling, where you don't only consider the stated needs, but also the challenges and the outcomes and the impacts that a prospect has to deal with in the context of their industry and their business. So the, the context becomes about a business dialogue, not just about an information download surrounding the product. And Devin, because you have been involved in a lot of businesses in an enablement leadership role, I'm really curious to hear from you what your experience has been along those lines, especially in regards to product training, and whether the businesses that you have joined initially were more on the just the product feature recitals end of the scale or the scenario-based solution selling scale? What has your experience been on that front? 
I'll share all of that. But a super quick note where any organization that I've joined to build out enablement, that is the first question. Can you deliver product training? I need everybody to be able to speak to every nook and cranny of our product offering. And I'm like, hold on, let's talk about it. But typically in my experience, it depends on the maturity of the business, right? So I think younger companies, startups in particular, tend to be very product centric especially as they're building their product offering, maybe scaling up, finding their product market fit, because for the company, it's all about the features and functions of what you're selling. And it's all anyone can think about, right? We have to build the best product. And so that's the conversations that are happening around the office. So early on, people need to understand what you're selling so they can communicate those features and benefits to others. And naturally, to your point, Felix, this is going to skew the conversations that the sellers and, and even our customer success teams are having because it's just ingrained into their DNA. But I do think we're seeing a major shift. So customers come in, as you said, like knowing what you do or they think they do, maybe talking to their peers, checking out forums, reviews, and half the time they've actually already decided what software or service or solution they're going to invest in. And so the strategy needs to shift where customer needs and solutions have to be taken into consideration across every single step of that customer journey. Because Again, we need to ensure the conversation is about the customer, their problems, their goals, and that we are leveraging those customer insights and knowledge to match the right solutions to the problem. So I think, again, a lot of startups, younger companies, it's all about the product. But as you start to mature, as the market becomes saturated, you need to get a little bit smarter. And I've seen organizations go through that shift where they realize, hold on, we need to be the trusted partner. So again, a lot of it is tied to organizational maturity and focus and really leaning into matching solutions to your customer problems. Otherwise, you're coming in and you're making more noise. So a positive shift from what I've seen in the companies I've worked at and have chatted with and talked to, but there's still this like, everybody needs to know everything about the product and it's all they need to know and we need to change that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it also ultimately sets self people up for success because they become less reliant on subject internal subject matter experts. Yeah, I think the worst case scenario I come across when coaching enablers or in consulting projects is that all this product information is just dumped on salespeople and they are expected to all the time be up to date with all the yeah. features of the platform, <laughs> which then also results in the demos being terribly run, them just dumping everything on the customer, it being really disjointed. And I mean, in one of my previous roles, I worked for a media company in Australia that had about 250 sellers and we had 85 products. Right? <laughs> and can you imagine that every salesperson would know every single information about every single product? It's pretty much impossible, right? And right. I think there's also a lot of companies that just feature a lot of products. And I think that sort of solution thinking really empowers salespeople to know where to start and where to look for information without being overwhelmed and overloaded. So yeah, yeah, definitely still a hot topic. And I would encourage everybody to tune in to learn more if you feel like your organization is falling short on that front. I should also mention, as I said, we haven't published a whole lot of podcast episodes recently, but there's a few ones coming up that I'm really, really excited about. And so there's Stephanie White coming on, on People First Enablement. I will have Amy Robertson. She'll actually join for a couple of episodes. She'll talk about sales enablement charters and also about custom sales methodology, which is also a topic that I'm really passionate about and really excited about because I feel like there's not enough focus on actually customizing sales methodologies out there. It's either mix and match or just completely off the shelf. We have Bill Perry also joining straight from Texas. He will talk about best practices across industries because he started his career as part of the U.S. Coast Guard, and he has learned a lot of things that he has been able to apply in his role as a sales enabler. So really excited about those ones. So those coming up on the State of Sales Enablement podcast. Cool. Now, next up, we have a research piece from Seismic. And Devin, that's your item. So tell us all about it. All right, let's dig into the value of enablement report from Seismic. Seismic is an enablement technology provider. So enablement technology is a very broad term, but it encompasses things like solutions, content management, automation, training, coaching, buyer engagement, strategy, planning, 
analytics and probably a hundred other things that I have not mentioned. But for this study, enablement technology is going to refer to all of the above, including any technology that helps customer success folks and salespeople have an incredible experience, save time, simplify their workflows, and provide insights to improve performance and increase revenue. That's a little stage setting. So if you are someone who's currently building or defending a business case to support the procurement of essential enablement technology, this report is going to be very valuable for you. It's filled with statistics, insights on the what, why, how, and impact of supporting or not supporting your customer-facing teams with a stellar tech stack to drive organizational efficiencies. And because of, I guess, the volatile economy, businesses are very focused on maximizing efficiencies, reducing costs, and we all know this, but because of that, enablement programs, headcount, and tech spend are being looked at under a microscope. We also know how important the right enablement tech stack is. And if a tech stack is hard to navigate or maybe it's too robust or isn't properly adopted, that it can actually cause more harm than good and will potentially block sales rather than serve as a conduit to success. So this report dives into the why for supporting a continued investment in enablement tech even during tough times. And it details how companies can use insights and the right strategy for helping financial teams to prioritize this investment and understand its overall ROI. There were tons of insights here. I'm gonna give you the distilled version about what we learned from this survey. So Seismic sampled around 1,200 sales, enablement, customer success, and other practitioners and leadership roles in the US and EU. And they found that enablement technology was very popular with 82% of respondents saying that they use it on the job. No surprise there, right? And a subset, 99% agree that enablement technology makes their jobs easier. So we know as enablers that employees who are supported, developed, and excel in their roles are happier, right? And this study validates that enabling on the right tech stack can increase productivity and efficiency. So respondents of the survey confirm that an effective tech strategy supports go-to-market efficiency, high-impact onboarding, learning and talent attraction, and most importantly, retention. And other findings support enablement technology as a single source of truth for customer-facing teams, for enablement, for RevOps, serving up content, training resources, metrics, and actionable program insights, which directly translates to improved go-to-market efficiency. So when we talk about enablement tech, it's not just for our customer-facing teams or for enablement. So many other folks in the business actually benefit from having the right tech stack in place. So underscoring that, 83% of respondents stated that the right tech stack frees up time to focus on revenue generating activities. One of my favorite stats to highlight when I'm presenting business cases for enablement tech. One thing that I want to call out that was kind of a, like a side note in the report, but I thought it was really interesting. And it was the breakdown of millennial and Gen Z respondents. So when I first got into enablement, it was all about the mystery of the millennial seller and like, how do you talk to the millennial seller? How do you support them? Now it's all about how we work with and support the Gen Z seller and Gen Z employees. So when addressing the importance of quick access to information, most folks said that this makes them more effective, confident in their jobs. No surprise there, right? But the survey reviews the generational confidence gap which I was not familiar with. So in the context of this generational confidence gap, they say that U.S. millennial respondents are 26% more likely than Gen Z to say that having quick access to information and content enables them to not second guess themselves. And Gen X respondents are 16% more likely than Gen Z to say this. So of course I had to go and do like a side goog on the, the whole thing because I was very curious. And the confidence gap came from research about Gen Z that was conducted, I think it was in 2018. And the insight shared that today's 16 to 22-year-olds, the emerging adults from Gen Z, are significantly less happy, more lonely, lacking in confidence, and less satisfied with life than other people. This made me very nervous. So Felix, we will revisit this in another episode. But back to the report. So to no one's surprise, folks who didn't have access to enablement tech shared that it created inefficiencies in their workflows and wasted valuable time. And those without enablement technology spend an average of 10 hours per week tracking down, comparing, or revising content. Again, a great stat to share in your business case when you are looking to procure enablement tech. 
The last stat that stood out focused on how companies are planning to invest in enablement technology. So the report states that 67% are going to increase capability solutions with their existing vendor, and 63% plan to implement enablement tools in additional departments in their organization. Only 3% of the respondents said that their companies plan to decrease investment in enablement tech to reduce spend. And as we've discussed from previous reports, now is the time to invest in our people to ensure we don't lose employees because we're making it harder and harder for them to do their jobs. So I love to see the data-backed insights. As I mentioned at the top, this is certainly something that will be useful for anyone making a tech case with their finance team. Overall, it does read like a little bit of an ad for Seismic, but I definitely thought there were valuable data points in here that are worth checking out. So Felix, what is your point of view on the purpose and value of enablement tech in these, we'll call it uncertain times, where companies are, are cutting costs left and right? Do you think one piece of enablement tech is more valuable now than others? So first of all, I want to qualify my answer in saying that I'm pretty old school in the sense yeah. that, so don't worry, I'm not going to tell stories about the war or anything, but <laughs> I'll qualify that in the sense that when I was in an enablement role about 15 years ago, we didn't have anything, right? So the, <laughs> the sales tech market in general was very, very immature and was very, very uncommon to actually have dedicated tools like the ones that we have today. And back then, we literally, especially when it came to content management, we only just had a shared drive and a few yes. spreadsheets right, and email at our disposal. So I think through that experience, I became quite resourceful when it came to actually making things work, which is not advocating for following that approach. But because of that, I probably have a bit of a different lens. And I don't think all tools are always necessary when it comes to actually determining what sort of tools add value. I think there's some universal truths, and they're especially true for companies that do have a lot of content. And I do believe everybody should be using content in their sales conversations just simply because the conversation has moved to be more asynchronous than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I think any sort of tech that allows you to manage content effectively, and that includes buyer engagement content, sales support content, but also training content, I think adds a lot of value just simply because... Otherwise, the logistics are just so painful to manage, and it is very, very hard to actually extract the data necessary for optimization. So I would say just in general, content management, of course, CRM is absolutely essential, so I wouldn't even put a question mark around that. Even though I'd, I have come across literally companies operating in the eight-figure realm that did not have a CRM, so it is possible. It is possible. But it's kind of one of those things that you don't want to know. <laughs> don't tell any CFOs that who are trying to cut tech spend. That's terrifying. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Or they somebody has a great idea of building their own CRM. No. Something like that. I've seen that happen. I do think you can cover a lot of ground without actually dedicated tech tools. But then again, I think it absolutely comes down to actually running the analysis, really understanding where tech adds value and where revenue-generating activities are maximized. And that's not necessarily activity that puts salespeople in front of the customer, but there can also be activity that is uh, preparing for sales calls, doing research, and all these kind of things. So rather than scrolling through endless pages of content lists, I think that time can be definitely be better spent. I think those sort of tools, if you have access, truly add value. I hear you. I My first role, we had a learning management system and Google Sites. Mm. So that was as advanced as we were. Next up, we've got another report, CSO report, Q1 2023 by Gartner. And those reports, I think, are quite interesting, even though I have to qualify that Gartner often repurposes content in their reports, which has been published a while ago. So it's not always hot off the press. So please don't expect that if you follow Gartner closely, especially. But a couple of things that really stood out to me that were really interesting were they summarized the key trends and critical challenges based on qualitative data. So they didn't have any sort of quantitative surveys that made them come to those conclusions. The responses that they formulated were quantitative, but those were just based on their client conversations, I suppose. So there are kind of three areas that they call out. One is the customer experience. The challenge that they call out here is that current digital and seller-led engagements create poor customer experience and hurt commercial results. So 
We'll unpack that in a second. But the other two that they also mentioned were economic uncertainty hurts performance, so sellers struggle to respond to uncertainties, impact on buying groups. And then the third one is sales talent management. And the challenge here is the constant turnover and longer hiring cycles that threaten sales results. And the three areas that they unpack here, which are aligned with those challenges, is number one is in regards to the customer experience to build better customer engagements. And the key here that they formulate is to really align technology with the buying journey and provide tools that buyers can engage with asynchronously. And that can be things like self-assessments initially that help them to better determine where they're at right now and to better understand the challenge that they're dealing with, which can then be also reflected in human engagement with the seller, which can then basically add perspective to the sort of findings that they have been able to extract through those self-assessments and really encourage buyers to slow down and reflect on their goals. The other angle that they also call out in terms of where technology can really work hand in hand with sellers is to facilitate group use of digital tools. So essentially provide the broader buying group with tools that help them to explore the solution and then collaborate with the buyers to relate and apply information. So it's essentially the sense-making approach that Gartner advocates for with the seller being more of a facilitator and a distiller of information. And then also from a digital engagement point of view to really validate the buyer's readiness to move forward and prepare the buyers for next set of questions and challenges. So some interesting points here. I think the orchestration of self-serve tools and seller engagement is still rather manual from my experience at this stage. So the tools are there, the tools are available. And then sometimes there is an effort being made by the salesperson to proactively share those tools. But I haven't come across an organization that really makes those self-serve digital tools a set part of their sales process and their with an aim to respond to a specific buyer journey. So I think that is an interesting angle that I haven't really come across yet. And that's definitely food for thought for sales organizations as well. The other thing that they also call out here in regards to dealing with uncertainty is three things. To map how uncertainty impacts customers. So meaning that you capture buyer acumen and document buyer acumen that really provides those insights into the world of the buyer in the context of current challenges, such as the economic downturn or any other crisis that are lurking around the corner. Then also to deliver valuable customer engagements and variable environments, meaning that they provide buyer enablement resources and sellers receive sense-making training. And then thirdly, to create a buyer-centric operating model, meaning that you really have your sales process focused on the buyer journey and that you really reflect what's happening on the sales organization side and really correlate that to what is happening on the buyer side. Those are kind of the things that they recommend here to deal with uncertainty. From my point of view, I think it's interesting, but at the same time, from my point of view, this is not necessarily too profound because it just comes down to buyer acumen, right? So that would be my main criticism here on that point, meaning that if you make an effort to consistently source buyer acumen, document it, pass it on to the sales organization, and then also constantly make an effort to really align your sales process and your sales methodology to the buyer journey and the buyer requirements, you have those problems solved anyway. So I think it is interesting in the context of some of the challenges that are happening right now, but I do believe that those things should be best practices in each case. Now, the last thing I want to call out before we move on from this report is the three new real realities of the sales talent market. And I think that one will also move us into the next segment, which features the wonderful Stephanie Zorabian. I can see that she's ready to go already. So Stephanie, just bear with us for a second here. But the three areas that they really call out here, which are also interesting data points, is that, first of all, hiring is taking longer. So the amount of time in days that hiring managers require to source sales talent has increased by 67%. Yeah, So that's a pretty long time. So that has increased from... 36 days to 60 days. The second one is the attrition number has increased. So you've got a greater turnover, staff turnover. And then 
the third point is that new hires are more expensive because sellers need or are only ready to move jobs if they can expect a 11 to 20% increase in their package. So hiring is taking longer, retaining talent is harder, and new hires are more expensive. So all of these things kind of feed into the talent management side of things and are a challenge for sales leaders at the moment. Definitely something to consider and also in the context of enablement really being seen as a function that improves the employee experience, which is something that I come across more and more often. Enablement actually being used as part of the hiring process to really sell the company and really communicating to the sellers that they're being set up for success here, which also ultimately then should be reflected in the bonuses that they earn. Now, I'll wrap that one up. Definitely interesting report here. And this is just one of the parts, as I said, anybody interested to check that one out, just please look for the Chief Sales Officer Leadership Challenges or check out our This Month in Sales and Aid newsletter. Now, to move on to the reality of the job market with some tangible examples of the sort of jobs that are out there and some trends, I want to dial in Stephanie Zorabian. Hello, everyone. Yes. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining again. We had a few months break when we had you last time. So curious to hear what's been going on. So Stephanie, tell us all about the job market. First of all, it's changing a lot. It's interesting to compile things week by week because I really see how things change so quickly. Last time I was here, I was saying that there was a huge shift in these hybrid roles and these on-site roles. And over the past couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of those diminish and I'm seeing a lot of remote roles opening up at different companies. I was absolutely not expecting that. I was expecting to have that remote area of my little job board dwindle down week by week until it was absolutely gone. But I'm so happy to say that remote work and even hybrid work is really alive and well in enablement. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, we have a huge benefit there. And I think it just speaks to the flexibility of our roles and enablement and what we can do from the comfort of our own home. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think it's probably also a reflection of the sort of leverage that talent oftentimes has, you know, like not everybody is ready to work under any conditions. And I think there's only so many roles that can be out there that don't offer a remote or hybrid environment. You know, there's a limit to what people are willing to settle for, I suppose. I think that's a good point. And if you look at the big influx of individuals on the job market over the past two months that have come from these, you know, big tech companies, they're really kind of used to a pretty comfortable arrangement with work, whether that be flexibility of hours or whatnot. And so I think that a lot of those individuals who still have some time on their severance, they're being more selective with the types of companies they're looking at. So even though job postings are up and companies are saying, oh, we have so many on the market now, I think the job seekers still have a little bit of leverage there. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And in terms of the type of roles beyond the hybrid or remote sort of work environments, what do you see there? Like, are there a lot of pure play enablement roles out there? Or are there also kind of sales training focused roles or roles that are completely remotely related to enablement that might not necessarily fit into that typical box that we that we see? I think that's exactly what we're starting to see with lots of different changes. So Enablement teams are shifting a lot right now. I know that, you know, in my organization, we went through a big reorg. You know, teams are moving, people are going over here, talent is going in lots of different directions right now. And I think that as job seekers, we really, you really need to be aware that certain companies have enablement sitting in lots of different places. They have it sitting within the people talent team that's housed by HR, they have it sitting in sales ops which um, is scary for me. Whenever I see sales ops, I'm like, oh, that's definitely not for me. Yeah, <laughs> I find that um, I'm a little too much for operations folks. <laughs> but I don't think that seeing things like that should scare different job seekers because I think that we're required to wear a lot of hats as sales enablement professionals anyway. But it kind of allows us to go horizontal in different organizations and become more of a competitive applicant when we're willing to go into a people manager role or a talent development role that's not traditionally sales. Mm -hmm. Interesting. When you have hiring managers or recruiters reach out to you and asking you to include their jobs in your post, do you find that sometimes they don't really understand the sort of area that you cover, <laughs> that they just hear sales, for example, and then just want you to post AE roles? Do you find there's a good understanding from all the people that contact you of what sales enablement is about? 
it's better than I thought. <laughs> I did think that I was going to get, it's like, oh, can you, we've got five BDR openings on our team. Can you post that? It is a lot better than I thought. One thing that I've noticed, I've been talking to a lot of individuals who are on the job hunt right now. And if you notice other industries and other jobs that got put on that were really hit by layoffs, it's been a lot of recruiters. It's been a lot of individuals that sit in HR. And so what I found is that these recruiters for companies that actually want sales enablement professionals are actually weeding through dozens and dozens of resumes from recruiters who are trying to transition. And of course, we still have people from the education industry who are still trying. So it's almost like these recruiters feel like they have this golden ticket when they do find someone with enablement experience. I think one catch is that I do see, and this is just normal, I feel like, but there's so many more roles available for mid-level. I don't see a lot of entry level. I don't see too many VP level or senior director level. So I think that those coming into the job market from having very high careers or even AEs or BDRs who want to transition into enablement, it's a bit harder for them than those who are more mid-career level. Now, I want to ask you something else, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but (laughs) when it comes to uh, the application process, do you have any insight into what people do that kind of set them apart and give them a leg up in the application process? Do you have come across any sort of tactics that make them stand out from the crowd, apart from just having, including a cover letter and making their CV maybe in a different color? Do they use things like direct mail? Do they contact any of the hiring managers directly? Do you have any insights into what people do on that front? So I am just such a creative person. My resume has my face. It's got color. I think it has a gradient in there of like rainbow. That's just me personally. And I feel like that does catch a lot of people's eye and people even say, oh, it's such a creative resume. You must be a creative individual, an individual who, I don't know, knows how to do something in Canva. (laughs) We could use that. (laughs) But one thing I am seeing is that a lot of enablement professionals are coming to me and asking, should I get some certifications? Do I need to go back to school? Do I need an MBA? And I always get really weary of people in a job-seeking position shelling out cash for certifications. And not that I'm not somebody who loves to be credentialed. I love doing training. I love adding, you know, little notches to my resume. But I think that even the free stuff is probably the most valuable. You getting into that interview and you being able to say what's coming up new in the CRM field, what the top industry leaders said in their last webinar I believe if I were hiring for somebody, I would be much more interested in the fact that they're very well-versed in the industry, that they keep up to date with tools and platforms and new sales methodologies and different techniques than having a PMP, for example. (laughs) I died on that mountain. I got the mini PMP. I think it's called the CAMP. I still can't build a cruise ship. You know, I think that's what it's meant for, for building cruise ships. But for those looking, really, I think that you demonstrating your knowledge and demonstrating the fact that you keep up to date would really stand out more than the fact that you might have invested in a certification of sorts. That's right. And to stay up to date, always tune into this month in sales enablement. I had to say that one. No, and I love it. I hadn't found that article yet. So I'm excited to dig into that when I'm done. If I get it with my free version of Gartner. Uh. (laughs) I couldn't agree more though. Like as a hiring manager, that's one of the last questions I'll ask in an initial interview. And if somebody can't tell me a podcast they listen to, an article, they've read something to show me that you are staying on top of trends, whether it's enablement, learning, that's the deal breaker. You have to be someone who's willing and open to learning and adopting and changing because we're asking our teams to do that. So it's kind of like drinking your own champagne, if you will. So I, I love that you called that out, Stephanie. It's so important. And especially for those transitioning industries, for example, if you've always worked in the financial sector and you've never worked in SaaS, even just showing that you're upskilling yourself by mm-hmm. listening in on webinars and all the different societies and that you understand what industry leaders are saying that's a big step in the right direction without the traditional SaaS experience or recurring revenue. That's right. And guys, do you follow Stephanie Zorabian yet? And if not, what are you doing? (laughs) Everybody, please follow Stephanie for the latest job updates. Stephanie, every person that I talk to who's looking for a job or who's shifting careers into enablement, I'm like, first, 
follow Stephanie. Here's a link to her LinkedIn. And then let's talk about other things. But like you are the first go-to for someone who's like, I don't know what to do. I need a new job. So love what you're doing as you know. That is so kind. And the best thing I've seen is that individuals who have found jobs, they really pay it forward. They bring other people in. And to me, I do something totally different in my day job. I'm not a sales enablement recruiter. I've never been a hiring manager building a team in sales enablement yet. But I can say that it's been so great to see the community come together and tagging people and helping people out. So I'm always so happy to help. Awesome, Stephanie. On that note, thank you so much for joining this month again. I hope you can make it next month again. Absolutely. Always a highlight. So uh, thank you so much for joining, Stephanie. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, everyone. Wow. Love it. Hey, how about that job market? Yeah, it's always interesting to see how things develop and to talk to somebody who's has their finger on the pulse of the enablement job market. It's incredible. So what, what do we have next? Oh, the social bus. Devin, that's your department. What's been happening there? It sure is. So this is, I'm going to call it an appreciation segment for Enable Minutes, which is powered by Alego. A number of folks on this call and Felix have been featured on Enable Minutes. So let's talk about it. These are awesome little 60-second knowledge bursts that started popping up in my LinkedIn feed a few weeks ago, and I was definitely intrigued. So the team at Alego created Enable Minutes for the busy enabler who doesn't have a ton of time on their hands, but wants to continue to level up, build their skills, learn from peers and experts in the enablement world. And it was designed to deliver these high-impact insights and tips from experts in the space in bite-sized micro-videos, which we all love so much. I love anything that is tiny, especially puppies and learning modules, so big fan. Featured speakers include everyone from enablement practitioners, CROs, marketers, salespeople, customer success managers, you name it. And the best part about enablement are the diverse perspectives, different voices, experience levels, points of view. And it also just kind of pops up anywhere you are. So Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube. I don't know when they're coming to MySpace, but I'm going to keep <laughs> my eyes peeled. I still have my MySpace account. I love it. But two things that I love about this resource. One, it keeps me in check if I find myself rarely scrolling through Instagram during the day and maybe I'm lost in a sea of memes or panda videos and it's like, oh, here's a knowledge nugget, just in time learning for me. And it also makes me put the phone down. But the best part as well is that they feature different topics. So it's not just about tech or training strategy. It's everything from conversational intelligence to prospecting, building assets, tech stack do's and don'ts and everything in between. So Felix, you and I talk a lot about echo chambers and how they're not good. Yes, they're validating and comforting, but that's where we start to stagnate. So these videos have been a great way for me to consume information from folks that I might not have typically followed on LinkedIn or who might not have come up in my suggested follows. So it's been just a terrific, really fun resource. And Felix, as I mentioned, you were featured on Enable Minute. So how was that experience for you? And what are you enjoying most about this new forum for the enablement community? Yeah, I think, first of all, I'm also a big fan. I think the greatest thing about Enable Minutes is that the barrier to entry for people to actually share their knowledge and really pass on some of those nuggets that they have is really low because everybody has something that they can share in such a short amount of time. And because everybody can speak and everybody can talk into the camera, uh, <laughs> I think it is also a very easy content format to produce for people. Mm -hmm. I think those guys at Allego do a great job. I recently spoke to somebody from a competitive company and a marketing leader, and he actually mentioned that he really respects them for the way they approach marketing. And I think that's a really reflection of that. I think mm -hmm. if a not-for-profit organization would have come up with that sort of format, it would probably be somebody like the Sales Enablement Society, because it really puts the spotlight on enablers and really helps them to contribute to the community in a really easy way. In terms of what my experience has been, yeah, absolutely great. It's been fun to be involved. I felt honored to be one of the first ones to be considered for that one. So yes. yeah, definitely keen to <laughs> be more involved in those. But I think it should also encourage enablers to become more active in producing content and actually share proven approaches that they have followed. I think content should never be produced for the content's sake. You should only focus on the areas that really add value 
not just share opinion constantly or like we do on this show. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. Oh, but, it's different. But uh, <laughs> I think if you share proven approaches and really spark thinking in the community, I think it always adds value. And I think enablers should feel confident about getting in front of the camera, recording a quick video and producing content that really adds value to the community. So I think great format all around and definitely looking forward to seeing more of those floating around all the different platforms out there. Same here. Cool. So. Next up. I want to talk about the four-day work week. Okay, let's do it. I am so jazzed about this, and I think it's worth sharing because all of us will benefit. So as we have discussed in previous episodes, but also just now with Stephanie, working remotely is incredible. I am so pro working remotely. I've been lucky to do it for most of my career. And like my other work from homies, I make so much more of my time, right? So I am always happier to be in my space with my dog, access to my espresso maker, and I can get huge projects done while playing the Golden Girls in the background. So pre-2020, working from home was sort of taboo, a little bit of a mystery for some businesses and leaders. And today, as we're seeing, it's becoming a standard practice. And so many of us expect to be able to work from home. Many folks have also seen productivity go up, job satisfaction go up, and we're really seeing a huge cultural shift across the globe when it comes to working from home. So looking into my crystal ball or my magic eight ball, whichever you prefer, the normalization of the four-day work week may be the next big paradigm shift we see for many businesses. So let me give you some backstory. In June 2022, the world's largest four-day work week pilot launched in the UK, the pilot was organized by an advocacy group called Four Day Workweek Global, very creative, and it included about 3,000 employees. So companies in the pilot could customize their approach to shorten the week. So many of them chose to cut the week down to four days, so one day less, or cutting down the average number of working days per year so that each week averaged about 32 hours. So people could get creative with how they wanted to structure it. The second best part of this whole thing is that employees still earned 100% of their pay. The other best part, there's a lot of best parts because this is awesome, is that it was incredibly successful. So much so that 56 out of the over 61 companies that participated in the pilot liked it so much that they decided to keep it going. And 15% of employees who participated said that, quote, no amount of money would convince them to go back to working five days a week. So as we said, the results were incredible. Participants cited better work-life balance, reduced stress levels, elevated mental health, healthier family dynamics, and improved job satisfaction. And we talked a little bit about how retaining your employees and keeping them happier is beneficial to your business, right? On top of all of that, companies in the pilot reported a reduction in resignations. And during this time, general like employee satisfaction across the board increased. So it's interesting or kind of common sense that when we treat employees like human beings that have families and lives and not productivity robots, they're going to be a little bit happier and more willing to work harder for your business. So because this was so incredible, many participants did not want to go back to the five-day work week once the pilot ended. And when they asked how much they'd need to be paid from their next employer to go back to a five-day work week, a third of the respondents said that they would need a minimum of a 26% pay increase, while 8% of folks said they wouldn't go back for less than a 50% increase. And from what I've read, the impact is even greater than we can imagine, potentially lower emissions because people are commuting less, possibly reduced healthcare costs, and, and so much more. And so it's not just about cutting down the time that you're sitting in seat. It's really about creating an environment where workers want to be on the job they can stay super focused on the task at hand, and they're not sitting around trying to fill time to please their resident manager or micromanager, depending on the situation. So what is next for the four-day work week? Good news, there are more pilots in motion around the globe. The results have been similar for all of the additional pilots, and there is so much passion behind this movement that bills have been introduced into the U.S. House of Representatives, specifically here in California, that would reduce the standard work week from 40 to 32 hours and mandate overtime pay for work that's done beyond that. And that bill was actually reintroduced into the House today, which again challenges that standard five day or 40 hour work week. My favorite insight shared in the article that will be in the newsletter was that 
the time that men spent looking after their children more than doubled in this study, which could indicate a very positive effect of a shorter work week on gender equality. So I have tried to employ some of these tactics with my team where I can. Obviously, we are a five-day workweek company, but we try to keep one meeting-free day a week so folks can actually focus on the work that needs to get done. We try to employ flexible hours to encourage productivity. But I mean, this shift could be game-changing. I think we all know the five-day work week served a very specific purpose when it was established many decades ago, and it was predicated on the fact that there would be one family member at home and one family member working, and the family member at home would be managing the house and the errands and caring for the family. And for the working person, they would come home and work would be over so they could focus on their life and their family. But today, work is everywhere. It's in our pockets 24-7. And in the majority of households, most adults have to work to support the family. So it's clear that the status quo we've become accustomed to is very outdated. It's no wonder that everyone's mental health is Ride. But this is such a cool thing. And we'll share some links to the pilot so you can dig into some of the details. But I, for one, will be signing the petition and advocating for this as much as I can. So, Felix, do you think we will ever make a move to a universal four day work week? What do you think? I think there's great benefits to it. I think even on the surface, but hearing about that research data, obviously adds more color to it. I think it's awesome. I think it addresses a lot of the issues that you would encounter these days with mental health, yes. gender equality, and so on. I run my own business, so I typically have a six-day work week. <laughs> You're like, ah. And I do all the daycare drop-offs and pickups at the same time because my wife doesn't work nearby, so she has no. the long commute. So for us, the setup is not a usual one. My wife has a four-day work week, though, and oh. she very much enjoys it. And I know a lot of women in our network as well that after taking time off, after they had children, also didn't go back to working five days a week. So I'm not sure if that's an Australian thing. Great. But all of them, they love it. And I think if you can make it work financially, that's even better. So yeah, I think the only thing that we're then missing on top of that, so working from home, four-day work week, and universal income. Once I got all those things, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm set up for life. How do we make this happen behind our little podcast microphones? What do we do? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we're we're signing all the petition. Now, we are unfortunately running out of time, but we still have a few things in the back pocket, which we might cover next month, because I do believe that they are really worth covering. But this one new segment that we wanted to talk about, which is also in the context of not spending all your day thinking about enablement. <laughs> you have to sleep sometimes. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, check my phone, and then I have to stop myself from actually responding to some random comments yep. on LinkedIn or the Self-Enablement Society. Let's get alive. And in that spirit, <laughs> we also want to share a few resources that people can use to actually spend their downtime and just enjoy their time off. So that might include all kinds of things to do or content to consume videos, podcasts, and so on. So to kick things off, Devin, what do you have for us? Well, I learned that I watch way too much TV. So I'm going to give y'all some really good television recommendations. So specifically, no affiliation with Apple TV, but they are bringing their A-game right now. So let me give you some suggestions. Severance. If you have not watched the show Severance, it's a show that's very relevant to the topic we just covered. It calls into question if there is such a thing as work-life balance, and it shows the dark side of what would happen if we had separate work selves and like our usual life selves. It's wild. Definitely check it out. Another one on Apple TV is Bad Sisters. So Felix knows my secret. I'm interested in true crime. And so Bad Sisters is a fictional crime show about a group of overprotective sisters who might have killed their abusive brother-in-law. That is not a spoiler alert. It is so good. And then finally, for TV recommendations, Poker Face. I don't think that's on Apple TV. I don't know what it's on. Maybe it's on Peacock. But it's Natasha Leone, who is like a 90s star. 
She's an accidental detective who can spot a liar from a mile away. If you are like me and you loved the show Columbo from, I think, the 80s or 90s, it's very similar to that show, and it's phenomenal. So, Felix, those are my TV recommendations. I have some podcasts, but I'd love to hear what you are doing to protect your mental health and take care of you. Yeah, I've got a couple of things. So, number one, also TV recommendation is Drive to Survive on Netflix especially for the females out there. It is about Formula One, but it is essentially the Formula One version of the Real Housewives, so to speak, right? So they <laughs> it's a camera team following the Formula One tour and basically documenting the dynamics between the different characters, between the different racing team principals, so the people in charge, the different drivers, the competitive between the different drivers, and then ultimately also the race and what happens during the race. So absolutely spectacular. Especially if you've got a great TV and sound system, uh, there's probably nothing better that you can watch right now, visually as well. Uh, so it's really interesting. And yeah, even my wife is hooked. So she is typically not into Formula One, but she actually started to check who's now driving for which team. Oh my gosh. Who won the latest race and so on. So I think Formula One have absolutely nailed that format <laughs> to get people hooked on that sport. So that's my number one. Number two is something that I just took up recently. I've got a bad back and my doctor recommended to either do physio, which is absolutely boring, right? (laughs) Or to go swimming. I'm not a great swimmer, but I have used swimming in the past as part of my fitness plan. So I took up swimming again, have been pretty disciplined and absolutely love it. So swimming for anybody who hasn't explored that as a thing for them to keep fit can definitely recommend it. So That's a great high-intensity way to stay fit with only investing a short amount of time. And then lastly, Devin, I've got a surprise for you. I'm ready. A recommendation which you might be interested in. There's a Golden Girls video game coming. What? How did I not know about this? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, it's been a passion project by somebody. Like they had it as an inside joke, they're two game developers, and then it basically escalated to a degree where they now actually launch a full-blown game. Oh, this is phenomenal. For those people that are not familiar with the video game realm, it's an RPG, so which stands for a role-playing game, and you are essentially slip into the role of one of the Golden Girls, and then you explore Manhattan, so it's called The Golden Girls Take Manhattan DX, oh, and my yeah, gosh. it's based on the sitcom. You have conversations, you know, like with the different characters and so on, so... Not many people know this about me, but I'm actually really into video games. The very little time that I can invest into that. So, <laughs> yeah, this one came on my radar. And, Devin, I think that's one for you. So, that is incredible. I will be playing as Dorothy because she did actually go to New York on the show. So, um, please send me that link. I'm yep. thrilled about this. Awesome. Awesome. It comes out later this year and it's actually free because it's a passion project. So, it's not licensed or anything. So, You can definitely uh, take your Golden Girls fandom to the next level (laughs) with that one. Amazing. That's it for everybody. So thank you so much for joining. We had a blast as always, and I hope you did too. Again, if you're interested in actually staying up to date with all the resources that we mentioned throughout the show and in general with the Sales and Amen space and be part of that Sales and Amen conversation, please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter this month in Sales and Amen, available on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for joining wherever you dialed in from, and we hope to see you in the next show. Bye-bye. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. The map is not the territory. Your GPS doesn't show you potholes, hills, street grades, missing manhole covers, open car doors, bikes, crosswalks, children playing, or pedestrians. The map is a guide while driving requires attention, situational fluency, and skill. Sales process management requires the same attention, situational fluency, and skill. 